सो हेयर इज द लास्ट गर्ल बाय नादिया मुराद पार्ट थ्री चैप्टर टेन आई होप यू आर गोइंग टू लाइक इट सो लेट्स गेट स्टार्टेड चैप्टर टेन द रोड लीडिंग टू द कैंप वॉज नैरो एंड मेड ऑफ डर्ट इट रिमाइंडेड मी ऑफ द रोड इन टू कोचो बिफोर दे पेव्ड इट एंड वेन वी अराइव देयर दैट मॉर्निंग आई ट्राई टू इमेजिन दैट आई वॉज एक्चुअली गोइंग होम बट एनीथिंग फेमिलियर ओनली मेड इट मोर क्लियर हाउ फार अवे माई ओल्ड लाइफ वॉज एंड जस्ट एडिड टू माई सैडनेस From a distance you could see the camps hundreds of white container homes spread across the low slopes of northern Iraq like bricks in a bowl each separated by a dirt path that was usually polluted with water from the rain the showers or the makeshift kitchens fences surrounded the camp for our own safety they said but children had already bent holes where the metal met the ground so that they could more easily reach the outside fields to play soccer At the camp entrance larger containers were offices for aid and government workers as well as a clinic and a classroom We moved in December when it was beginning to get cold in northern Iraq and even though the half-built houses in Jakho offered more protection from the winter I was looking forward to having a space that I could call my own The containers were roomy enough and we had a few next to one another one that we used as a bedroom another as a sitting room and a third as a kitchen The camp did not adapt well to northern Iraq seasons When winter came the walkways between the caravans were sticky with mud and we struggled not to drag it inside We had water for only one hour a day and one heater that we shared to try to warm up the container homes when there was no warmth the cool air would condense on the walls and drip down onto our beds so we fell asleep with our heads on damp pillows and woke up to the sharp smell of mildew Throughout the camp people struggled to recreate the lives that were stolen from them. It is comforting to do the same thing you used to do at home even if it's just going through the motions. In Duhok in the camp the routines were the same as they had been in sorry as they had been in Sinjar. Women cooked and cleaned obsessively like if they did it well enough they could be transported back to their villages, wake up their men from the mass graves. and written life to how it had been each day when their mobs were stashed back in the corner and all the bread was baked the fact that there was no home and no husband to go home to crash down on them anew and they cried huge waves that shook the walls of our container home our houses in kochu were always full of voices children playing and the camp was quiet by comparison We even missed the sound of family members squabbling over things. Those fights would play in our heads like the most beautiful music. We had no way to find work or go to school, so mourning the dead and the missing became our job. For the men, life in the camp was even harder. There was no work and they did not have cars to go to the city for jobs. Their wives, sisters and mothers were in captivity and their brothers and fathers dead. Before my brothers joined the Peshmerga or the police we had no money coming in except for the stipends that the Iraqi government and sub aid agencies spearheaded by a Zidi rights organization called Hista which was formed just after the Kochum Askari were giving to survivors of the genocide 
Yazda, which was being led by a group of Yazidis living all over the world who had dropped everything in their lives to help victims of the genocide and to whom I would eventually devote my own life, was quickly becoming the main source of hope for Yazidis everywhere. We still ran for food when they came to deliver it, and sometimes we missed the trucks. One day they would stop on one side of the camp and the next day on the other. Sometimes the food seemed rotten and we would complain that the rice smelled like trash when you cooked it. When summer came, I decided to take matters into my own hands. I went to work in a nearby field where the farmer, a Kurd, was employing refugees to harvest cantaloupe. If you work all day, we will serve you dinner, he promised, in addition to the small wage, and so I stayed until the sun was nearly set, picking the heavy melons off their vines. When he served us the meal, though I nearly gagged, it was the rancid rice from the camp, plain and stinking on our plates. I felt like crying because the farmer saw us this way that he thought because we were so poor and we lived in the camps, he could feed us anything and we would be grateful. We are human, I wanted to tell him. We had homes, we had a good life. We are not nothing, but I stayed quiet and ate what I could of the disgusting food. Back in the field though, I grew angrier. I will finish my work today, I thought, but there is no way I am coming back tomorrow to work for this person. Some of the other workers started to talk about ISIS. To the refugees who had escaped their villages before the terrorists came, those of us who had been captured were a curiosity and they were always asking us questions about what life was like under ISIS, as though following the plot of an action movie. The farmer walked behind us. Which of you came from Daesh? he asked, and the others pointed at me. I paused my work. I thought he would say that he was sorry for the way he had treated us, that he that if he had known there were Islamic State survivors in the camp, he would have been nicer to us. Instead, he wanted to talk about how great the Peshmerga were. Oh, Daesh is going to be finished, he said. You know how the Peshmerga do it? They did a great job and we lost a lot of people from the Peshmerga to free a lot of Iraq. Do you know how much we lost? I could not help saying back to him. Thousands of our people died. They lost their lives because the Peshmerga chose to withdraw. The farmer stopped talking and walked away, and a young Yazidi man turned to me, upset. Please don't say anything like that, Nadia, he told me. Just work. When the day ended and I went to tell the Yazidi in charge that I did not want to work for the farmer anymore, he looked at me angrily. The farmer told us all not to come back, he said. I felt so guilty that because of what I had said, everyone had lost their job. Soon though, it became a funny story that spread throughout the camp. After I left and started telling my story outside Iraq, a friend of mine visited the camp and complained to some of my friends there that I was being too easy on the Peshmerga. Nadia should tell the world what they did to us, he said, and one of the Yazidis started laughing. She shared that from the beginning and we were all fired because of it. Diman made it to the camp at 4 in the morning on January 1, 2015. She still teases me for being asleep when she arrived. I cannot believe you were able to fall asleep while I was running for my life, she says, but I just hugged her tight. 
I stayed up until 4 in the morning I tell her you were late I did stay up as late as I could until the moment that dizziness took over and the next thing I knew my older sister was standing over my bed she had run for hours along the border with turkey and syria and her legs were bleeding where they had scraped the barbed wire on the border fence it could have been worse of course she could have been discovered and shot by a border patrolman or stepped on a landmine having the mill back felt like a big wound had healed but we were not happy we held on to each other and cried until 10 in the morning then she greeted the stream of guests who came to cry beside her we did not get to talk about anyone else until the next morning that was the hardest moment of dimmer's homecoming waking up that morning on mattresses next to each other and hearing her ask her voice hoarse from crying nadia where is the rest of the family later that month adki also managed to escape we were frantic with worry we had received so little information about what had happened to her some weeks earlier a woman had escaped syria and made it to the camp she told us that she had been with adki in syria eager for details we begged her to tell us everything she knew they believed that adki was a mother she told us so they would wait before they touched her keeping our nephew miran sorry keeping our nephew miran safe was all adki cared about she told me that if i promised to take care of miran she would kill herself the women told us i told her to be patient we will get out of there one day but she was distraught after we heard that we feared the worst for adki we began to mourn her my spirited my separated sister who had yelled at the man who told her she could not learn to drive and our sweet nephew miran then out of the blue adki called hajni's phone they are in afrin my brother told us statistics afrin is in kurdish held syria and was not part of isis it was being defended by the kurds in syria and i thought since those fighters had helped yazidis of the mountain they would certainly help my sister adki and miran had escaped raqqa and been taken in by an arab shepherd and his family they stayed with them for a month and two days while they tried to figure out the safest way to get her out of islamic state territory the shepherd the shepherd daughter was engaged to a man in afrin and the family waited until the day of the wedding when they would have a good explanation for why they were all going up north later hajni told us that he had no adki had been with the shepherd's family but he had kept it to himself because he did not want to get our hopes up two days after that first phone call from afrin adki arrived at the camp with miran in tow this time i waited up until 6 in the morning with dimal we dreaded having to tell adki what had happened to everyone else those who we knew were dead and those who were missing but we did not have to she figured it out on her own somehow and soon adki was living with us in our small mournful world it was a miracle that my sisters got out in the 3 years since isis first came to sinzar yazidis have escaped slavery in extraordinary ways some have been helped by sympathetic locals as i was while others have had family members or the government pay money sometimes huge sums to smugglers or directly to the islamic state member buying the girl back from him 
Each girl cost about $5,000 to get out with a larger amount, but Hajni would describe as the cost of a new car going to the head of the operation who used his connections throughout Arab and Kurdish Iraq to coordinate the rescue. The money was spread among the many middlemen, drivers, smugglers, document forgers that it would take to free one single girl. Every story of escape is incredible. One girl from Kocho was taken to Raqqa, the Islamic State's capital in Syria, where she was held with a large group of women in a wedding hall to avoid distribution. Desperate, she tried to ignite a propane canister with a lighter and burn the hole down but was discovered before she could. Then she forced herself to vomit and when an Islamic State militant told her to go outside, she and a group of girls ran into the dark field surrounding the hole. Eventually, they were turned in by a passing farmer, but she was lucky. Weeks later, the wife of the man who had bought her helped coordinate her escape out of Syria. Soon after, the wife died of appendix. Apparently, there was not a surgeon in the Islamic State capable of saving her. Zilan was in captivity for over two years before Hajni was able to get her out with the most elaborate and risky plan I have ever heard. Yet, Zilan's captured wife had become weary of her husband's abuse of Yazidi girls and she called Hajni, offering to help. Her husband was a high-ranking Islamic State member and a target for the anti-ISIS coalition that was bearing down on the caliphate. You will have to get your husband killed, Hajni told her. That's the only way, she agreed. Hajni put the wife in touch with a Kurdish commander who was working with the Americans to strike Islamic State targets. Tell him when your husband leaves the house, Hajni instructed her. And the next day, the militant's car was hit in an airstrike. At first, the wife did not believe Hajni that her husband was dead. Why is not anyone talking about it then, she said. She was scared that her husband had escaped and would discover what she was doing. She wanted to see his body. It is too destroyed, Hajini told her. The car has basically melted away. Now the women had to wait for further instruction and they had only a small window in which to get Zilan to safety. After two or three days, it was confirmed that the militant was in fact dead and other Islamic State members came to the house to get Zilan and take her to a new owner. When they knocked, the wife came to the door. Our Sabaya was in the car with my husband, she told them, trying not to let her voice tremble. She died too. Satisfied, the militants left and when they were out of sight, Zilan and the wife were smuggled to an Iraqi army outpost and eventually to Kurdistan. A few hours after they left, their house was bombed as well. As far as Daesh is concerned, they are all dead, Hajni told me. Others were not so fortunate. I learned that they had found a mass grave in Solek in December 2015. A few months later, after I left the refugee camp and moved to Germany with Dimal, part of a German government program to help Yazidi victims of ISIS enslavement. Early in the morning, I checked my phone. It was full of messages from Adki and Hajni. They called often to update me on family who were still there, particularly Saeed, who had gotten his, who had gotten his wish and was fighting in Sinzar with a newly formed Yazidi unit of the KDP Peshmerga. Saeed is close to Solag, Adki told me when I called her. 
soon we will know what happened there Dimal and I were supposed to go to a German lesson that day but we could not move all day we sat in our apartment waiting for news I got in touch with a Kurdish journalist who was covering the fight to retake Soleg and between him Said and Adke my phone barely stopped ringing all day other than watch the phone Dimal and I prayed for our mother to be found alive sometime in the afternoon the journalist called his voice was low and i knew right away he had bad news we found a mass grave he said it is near the institute and it looks like there are about 80 bodies women all i listened to him and put down my phone i could not bear to be the one to tell dimal or to call adki or hajni and say that our mother who had survived so much for so many years was dead my hands were shaking then dimal's phone burst she had a message from our family everyone was screaming i could not move i called said and he cried as soon as he heard my voice none of my work here has mattered he said i have been fighting for one year and we have found nothing no one i begged hajni to let me come back to the camp for the funeral but he said no we don't have her body <clears throat> he said the military is still in zolag even if you came they would not let you anywhere near the grave it is not safe for you nadia he said i had already begun my work as an activist and isis threatened me every day after my mother's death was confirmed i clung to the hope that catherine my niece and my best friend who was so kind and loved by everyone who met her would be able to escape and we would be reunited I needed her with me if I was going to survive the rest of my life without my mother. Hajni who loved his brother's daughter like his own had been struggling for months to find a way to get Catherine to safety and failing. Catherine had tried to escape many times from Hamdania and from Mosul but she had always failed. Hajni kept a voicemail from her on his phone. In it Catherine begs my brother This time please rescue me don't let them keep me save me this time please Hajni would play it and cry moving to try In 2015 we had a breakthrough Hajni got a phone call from a garbage collector in a small town outside Kirkuk that had been an Islamic state stronghold since the early days of the war I was collecting trash from my house belonging to Dr Islam he told my brother a girl named Catherine came out She asked me to call you to tell you she was alive. The garbage collector was scared that ISIS would find out he had made the call and told Hajni not to connect him again. Sorry, contact him again. I won't go back to that house, he said. Escaping would be very hard. The town is home to at least 100,000 Sunni Arabs and Dr. Islam was now high-ranking within ISIS. but hajni had a contact in the town and using the messaging app telegram was able to reach catherine the contact told catherine to go to a hospital there is a pharmacy nearby he said i will be inside holding a yellow file in my hands when you see me don't talk to me just walk back to the house where you are being held and i will watch to see where you are going so i know where it is Catherine agreed she was almost to the hospital when it was hit in an air strike and she was so terrified she immediately went back to the house without meeting the contact 
Next, Hajni tried going through some Arabs who did not support ISIS and were trapped in the same town. They owned a house in a nearby village that they could reach without being stopped at major checkpoints and agreed to hide Catherine there. Through them, Hajni was able to get messages to and from Catherine, who said that after the air strike on the hospital, they had moved to a different house in the city. She described she described it to the new contact who then took his wife to the neighborhood knocking on doors saying they were looking to rent a house nearby when he knocked on the house where catherine was being held another sabaya opened the door it was almas a nine-year-old girl from kocho behind her he could see my niece and lamia my friend wala's sister all three were being held captive by dr islam tomorrow morning if there are no militants in the house hang a blanket from the window the contact whispered to catherine after 9:30 am if i see the blanket i will know it is safe to come back catherine was scared but she agreed that morning he drove slowly by the house a blanket hung out of the window and he got out of his car and knocked on the door the three yazidi sabaya catherine lamia and almas ran out and got into his car after the girls were safely in the nearby village the man called hajni and he wired him some money Three days later, Hajni found smugglers who, for $10,000, were willing to take the three girls and the Arab family who had helped, helped them to safety, but without the right papers, they would have to walk across the Kurdish border at night. We will take them as far as the river, the smugglers told Hajni. After that, another guy will take them to you. At midnight, the first smuggler called Hajni and told him that he had made the handoff. My family prepared for Catherine to come to the camp. Hajni waited by his phone all night, expecting the call, telling him that Catherine had made it into Kurdish territory. He was desperate to see her, but the phone never rang that night. Instead, at about 1.30 in the afternoon the next day, a Kurdish man called and asked if Catherine, Lamia and Almas were our people. Where are they? Hajni asked. Lamia, she is badly wounded, the man told Hajni. They had stepped on an IED while trying to cross into Kurdistan and it had exploded beneath them. Most of Lamia's body was covered with three third degree bones. Bless the souls of the other two, they passed away. He finished. Hajni dropped the phone. He felt as if someone had shot him. I had already left Iraq by the time this happened. Hajni had called me after they made it to the first smuggler's house and told me that Catherine was safe. I was ecstatic at the thought of seeing my niece again, but that night I had a terrible dream. I dreamed that I saw my cousin Suleiman standing next to one of the generators that supplied Gocho with electricity. In the dream, I was walking with my brother Masood and my mother. And we got close to Suleiman, we saw that he was dead and that animals were eating his body. I woke up in a sweat and in the morning I called Hajni. What happened? I asked and he told me. This time Hajni agreed that I should come back to Iraq for the funeral of Catherine. We arrived at 4 am in the Erbil airport and went first to see Lamia in the hospital. She could not talk. Her face was so badly burned. Next, we went to Kirkuk to see the Arab family who had helped Catherine and the others escape. We wanted to find Catherine's, 
Catherine's body so that we could bury her properly in the Yazidi tradition, but the family could not help us. When they stepped on the bomb, she and Almas immediately died. They told us, we carried Lamia to the hospital, but we could not take the bodies too. They are with ISIS now. Hajni was beyond consoling. He felt that he had failed his knees. He still listens to her pleading voicemail, torturing himself. Save me this time, she says. I can picture Catherine's hopeful face when I hear it and Hajni's face too, covered in tears. We drove to the refugee camp. It, lo- it looked the same as when I had first moved there with my brothers nearly two years before. Although people had made their containers more like homes, hanging tarps to create shaded outdoor spaces and decorating the insides with family photos. Some people had jobs now and there were more cars parked between the container homes. As we got closer, I could see Adiki, my half-sisters, and my aunt standing together outside. They were pulling at their hair and holding up their hands to the sky, praying and crying. Catherine's mother, Ashmar, had been crying so hard the doctor worried that she would go blind. I heard the sound of the funeral chant before we passed through the camp gates, and when we got to my family's container, I joined in walking in a circle with my sister, slapping my chest and wailing. I felt all the wounds of my captivity and escape open anew. I could not believe that I would never see Catherine or my mother again. That was the moment I knew that my family was truly destroyed. Thank you for joining me. I hope you like it. Thank you for so much.